0: When I say the Midwestern imagination, the Midwest is a big place. So I'm, I'm an outsider. I'm also an insider in, in that my three children were born in Northwest Ohio. And, and one of them said to me one time, this was after I, I was doing a lot of work on culinary tourism and writing about food in Spain and Ireland and, and Far East Asia and Southeast Asia. And, and in Appalachia. And she said, Mom, you know, we were born here. Don't we have anything interesting? And, and I realized <laughs> I'd been kind of ignoring what was right around me. And part of that was out of respect, uh, because I was constantly told I'm not, I don't belong. <laughs> you know, so, so I didn't want to be speaking for people you know, who, who, who didn't feel like I was really a member of them. Okay, so I, I, I mention all of this just as kind of a background to, to this work, um, but also the Midwest, it is not a homogenous region, even though it's referred to as the flyover region, and everybody thinks that everybody has cows in their backyard, and you know, so, so when I say the Midwestern imagination, there are many different Midwestern imaginations. So, there's a diversity here that that it's, I I can't reflect all of that diversity, but we do see patterns also. So, a lot of what I'm trying to look at are, these are the cultural patterns that are here, Um, these are the cultural patterns that other people notice. Okay, so, okay so, so with that, I'm not. I'm not going to read a paper, but I'm going to read a little bit of it just to make sure that I don't lose my place. Okay. So apples in the Midwestern imagination. Okay. I I also teach at Bowling Green State University, but they don't provide any support to my center, so I don't like to name them. <laughs> so, okay. So apples. Um, apples are one of America's favorite fruits. According to a 2014 study, Americans in 2012 ate an average of 44 pounds of apples per person. That's about 135 apples a year. You know, so that's an apple every other day, almost. So apples in the U.S. are pushed as healthy. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. They're pushed as versatile. They can be eaten raw processed into a number of forms, and used in a variety of dishes. And they're also promoted as All-American, something that's a part of our history, and also ideally accessible and available to everyone, regardless of race, class, ethnicity, gender, region. So apples, apples are grown in all 50 states, you know, so they are, in theory, available to everyone. So, are apples special to the Midwest? Michigan is the third highest producer in the U.S. Ohio is sixth. Wisconsin, eighth. Illinois, 13th. So, Washington and New York are the leading states of commercial production. Okay, like many Americans, Midwesterners have fond memories of apples. Family apple orchards are commonplace. Cider mills used to be and are actually now returning. Apple butter is a traditional way of preserving the fruit in many of the rural regions. Apple pies and apple pastries frequent many homemade and commercial tables. Johnny Appleseed is embraced as a hometown hero. Okay, and not so much out here, but in Ohio and Indiana. And numerous, numerous apple festivals Celebrate the fruit. There's apple butter festivals, Johnny Appleseed festivals, apple festivals. Okay, and, and this is that's actually more in the eastern part of the Midwest. These memories make apples a significant part of personal histories and of local food cultures. So aside from being a worthy subject in itself, these traditions around apples allow us to look at several questions. First of all, how does food become meaningful to an individual, and to a group? How and why do memories get attached to some foods and not to others? Or are they always attached to food and we just don't recognize them? How do certain foods, how do apples, become a part of an individual's identity? Okay, Sometimes it's a part of identity, but people don't recognize it. You know, so, so why is it sometimes public, and, and other times private? Okay, also, does a regional food tradition have to be unique to an area in order to represent that culture? Okay, so, so part of this was, when, when I moved to Ohio, I was asking people, what do you have here that's distinctive? And they said, nothing. <laughs> we're middle America, <laughs> you know, we're just all American and said, okay, you know, and I went to restaurants and places and, well, you're kind of right, (laughs) you know, lots of meatloaf and mashed potatoes and jello salads and, you know, kind of of all the stereotypes, and they seem to all be true in northwest Ohio. So I I would ask people, well, you know, do you feel like you have an identity that's tied to place? And they said, well, yeah, you know, I have very fond memories of my grandfather's farm, you know, but these are just all American memories, or they should be. You know, so there was this perception among the people I was talking to that there was not a distinctive culture in the Midwest. Okay, and, and I don't know if you're familiar with the popular stereotypes of the Midwest. In television shows, anytime they want to. Talk about someone who's boring or a place that's boring, they say Cleveland or Akron. Okay, and you know, Chicago's not really in that. You know, Chicago's a bubble. <laughs> you know, but the, the perception of the Midwest is that it's boring and bland, and their food is boring and bland. Okay, so you know, so part of what I was trying to find out was are there any any traditions, any foods that are very distinctive just to the the Midwest. Okay, and now why do people have this perception that they don't have a culture, that they're just all-American? Okay, so I'm using apples to to look at at some of those issues. Okay, first of all, let's go go back to where apples come from. Okay, and this is partly because we think of apples as all-American. Does anyone know where apples are from? Um, South West Asia. Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan <laughs> Asia. Yes, yes. Now, and what I think is interesting here, when, when I'm talking to like, even people who run orchards in Ohio and Indiana, say, where do apples come from? Out there, they'll say, oh, Johnny Appleseed brought them. So, I don't know, maybe New England. You know, But there's, there's a real perception that Apples are an indigenous North American fruit. However, apples are, are one of the fruits that we've actually, not we, scientists, have, have traced the DNA back to, to Kazakhstan and Central Asia. There are wild forests of apple trees. Okay, And this area is known as the grandfather of apple mountains. If people had just gone to Kazakhstan and asked the people there, they could have told them you know, that, that this is where apples originated. You know, but it's fascinating to me that they all come from this area. Okay, and, and then part of what has happened with, with wild apples, the, the seed of each apple has, has innumerable variations so that you never know what kind of apple, what kind of taste you're actually going to get. So, these wild apples, all of these could be from one tree. It's just this incredible variety. Okay, Now, that means if you, want, if you want something to eat and you go to a wild tree, you don't know if you're going to be getting a really bitter apple, you know, or something that's real mushy and mealy, or something that's very sweet and juicy. So, what people have done, you know, we, we want to know what kinds of apples we're going to get. You know, if, we, if we're making apple pie, we know we want certain apples. So, so, we want uniformity. So, in order to predict, in order to know what kinds of apples we'll get, grafting developed. This is something, there are archaeological records suggesting that this was being done at least 1000 BC. Okay, and So, the what they would do is if there was a branch or a tree that seemed to be mostly one type of apple, they would take a twig from that, they would graft it into the the, the root stalk of another apple tree, and then therefore they would they would be able to determine what type of fruit they would get. Okay, so so just, just a few facts on apples in North America. Crab apple is the only apple native to North America and it's actually not the same species according to botanists. I'm I'm not a botanist, so I might not even be using the right words, but but crab apples are not really related to apples. Um, The pilgrims brought apple saplings with them. They planted the first apple trees. The first apple nursery was opened in 1730 in New York. Um, I was just talking to someone who told me that Newark, New Jersey was also one of the oldest apple orchards and that they have a long, long history of developing apples and and selling apples. One of George Washington's hobbies was pruning his apple trees. These are just kind of like these little facts that I thought would be fun. America's longest lived apple tree was reportedly planted in 1647 by Peter Stuyvesant in his Manhattan orchard and it is still bearing fruit or it was still bearing fruit, when a train struck it in 1866. Okay, now, apples are grown in all 50 states. They are grown commercially in 36 states. In 1997, there were 9,000 apple growers with orchards covering 453,200 acres. Now, this gets a little difficult when we talk about, well, how many orchards are there? because then you have to define what is an orchard. I have three apple trees in my backyard. I planted one for each child that was born. Is that an orchard? The bees think so, <laughs> you, know, you know, but at, at what point does an apple tree, an apple grove become an orchard? And almost everybody used to have one or two apple trees in their, in their yard. So counting this is extremely difficult. Okay, so the average size of a U.S. orchard is 50 acres. 2,500 varieties of apples are grown in the United States. Unfortunately, we don't usually see that many varieties in the store, Um, but 7,500 varieties are grown throughout the world. So, So 250 varieties are grown. Only 100 varieties are grown commercially. Delicious apple is the most famous. Okay, so the area that I have been focusing on um, is the Eastern Midwest, and since I live in Ohio, I've been focusing on Ohio, um, and that's Johnny Appleseed country, you know, so there are a lot of festivals, so it's very easy to do research. I'm also, I've also been in Wisconsin a lot. That's because I have children who live in Wisconsin. <laughs> so sometimes research follows practical things like that, you know, where you have friends and, and family. So I, I have not been ever into Missouri and Iowa. I do have a friend who lives in Minnesota and runs an apple orchard. So I have been up there. You know, so so this this is not a sociological type of survey, you know, where I've gone to every state and every community in, in every state. Okay, so you know th- these are general patterns that that I am seeing. Okay, so in 1787. Okay, the Continental Congress established the Northwest Territory. Okay, and so this was the area bordered by the Appalachian Mountains on the east, the Mississippi River to the west, okay, the Great Lakes on the north. Okay, a very, very, very rich soil, very good um, water resources, and a very temperate well, depending on, on what time of year it is, I wouldn't say Wisconsin is temperate <laughs> during the winter, but, but the, the cold nights are needed to make good apples, you know, so, you know, so the, the four seasons makes a difference. Okay, now, so this region, this was the region that was considered the frontier, okay? And this is where pioneers will, would fulfill the manifest destiny of the young nation. Settlers were expected to be self-sufficient and hardy, strong on practical skills, with a smattering of the niceties of civilization. Cultivating apples was a sign of these qualities, as well as a necessity for supplying families with food and drink. Orchards were an expected part of homesteads, so settlers either either brought seeds and saplings with them or purchased them from traveling peddlers. one reason apples were so important was that water was considered unsafe to drink. Okay? This was coming out of the European experiences with the Black Plague, and, and water had been unsafe to drink. So there were traditions of drinking beer and, and hard cider in order to, to have the water safe. This was carried over and established in, in the colonies also, and then cider and beer were both things that everybody drank, children drank also, okay? because it, it, the fermentation did kill some of the bacteria. So when people said cider, they automatically meant hard cider. And most of the apples were not the sweet, juicy apples that we think of today, good for eating they were very bitter, hard apples that were good for cider. Okay, so, so prior to Prohibition, most of the apples that were being grown were hard, bitter cider apples. Okay, so that's, that, that's kind of an important thing to realize because it's, it's a real shift in, in, in how we think of apples. So when, when Prohibition came, cider, beer, everything was outlawed. Many, many orchards were cut down. They said, oh, the source of all this evil. So, so they cut down those orchards. Okay, and we've actually lost many heirloom varieties in that way. Now, one of, one of the salesmen, the apple salesman, was John Chapman, he figures prominently in the cultural history and mythology of the more eastern part of the state, particularly Ohio and Indiana, the Johnny Appleseed country. Okay, better known as Johnny Appleseed, John Chapman, his real name, who was born in 1774 in Massachusetts. He actually died in 1845. He was a Swedenborgian, He was a member of the Church of the New Jerusalem. This was a utopian religion that promoted peaceful coexistence with nature. He combined his religious beliefs with the the very common occupation of traveling nurserymen. And he he would actually plant orchards and grow the saplings in different places so that then he could go back and get those and sell them. So he was actually a very savvy businessman. So he did this throughout Ohio, and, he, and today in, in Ohio, you can still find places where people say, these are Johnny Appleseed trees, the descendants of, of his trees. You know, and, and there are markers for his homestead. Um, so he, he lived in Mansfield for a little while, and then he was down, down closer to Columbus. He, he has become kind of a mythic figure, kind of like Paul Bunyan. A lot of people outside the Midwest don't know that he's real, or if they have not read Michael Pollan. <laughs> you know, they, they think he's, he's just a, a fictional character. And he's frequently portrayed okay, as kind of a cartoon character, you know, with a tin pot on his head, um, you know, and he talks to the animals, you know, th- things like that. Okay, in 1948, Walt Disney, the animated film Legend of Johnny Appleseed, that introduced him nationally, you know, but he does remain misunderstood. He actually was, um, he, his, his philosophy was one of peace, and he negotiated peace treaties with a number of the Native American, Native American groups in Ohio and Indiana, which unfortunately those treaties were then broken by, by others. You know, but he, he does have more depth and complexity you know, than we usually see in the cartoon characters People in Ohio and Indiana know that, <laughs> okay, and you know they, they they really think of him as a hometown hero. So one one of my children who he's 30, and when I was telling him about giving this talk, I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we used to play Johnny Appleseed." I said, "Really? You know, <laughs> they would go out in the backyard and pretend to be Johnny Appleseed and talk to the animals." So, you know, so. He, he really is a, a major figure that is significant to Midwestern, that part of the Midwest, Midwestern identity. I don't, I don't know if he has any, is he known in Chicago, in this area? Yeah. So, okay, so people know him, but they might not be excited about him. <laughs> so Okay, so now the Eastern Midwest was a, prohibi- was a stronghold for prohibition, that's partly because there was an anti-German sentiment, an anti-Eastern European um, sentiment, and, and beer making at home tended to be something that was a, a family tradition among Germans and Eastern Europeans. You know, so a lot, of, a lot of historians say that's a lot of what was going on with the Prohibition. Okay, but the result in, in Ohio and in Indiana was that all these orchards, were cut down. Okay, and actually Ohio had been one of the major wine producing regions. First Cincinnati and then after the Civil War it moved up to the Great Lakes. Okay, and that was where most of the wine came from. Okay, and all of that, all of those industries were, were just completely wiped out. Okay, so since Prohibition Sweet apples suitable for eating, as well as for non-alcoholic juice and cider. You know, so now when you say cider," most Americans think juice, okay, or you know, juice with the sediment in it. Many farms have continued to include a small orchard for personal use, and even suburban and city yards frequently boast an apple tree or two. So apples and apple products are now readily available everywhere, and they are ubiquitous in local food culture. School lunches. McDonald's, apple slices, okay? So, the memories of these apples seem to associate them for many Midwesterners with home, family, their own childhoods, and pioneer heritage, as well as an all-American identity. Okay, now, what I'm seeing here, though, is that there are two sides to this Midwestern identity. Okay, there's the conservative, we all come from pioneers, you know, and we represent American heritage, And then there's this very modern embracing of technology that happens. So think about industrial agriculture, giant farms. The Midwest is where much of this was being developed. One of the um, things that has happened is that people have developed new apple varieties. The Midwest Apple Improvement Association. Now, the people are very nice. Notice, though, just the idea of improvement. You know, it's the idea that humans can improve on nature. Okay, so part of what we see with apples in the Midwest is this tension between this, this ideal of being conservative. Oh, we're tied into nature and the seasons, and you know, we, we live with all of this. And then on the other hand is we need to tame nature. And, and humans can always come up with technology that does that, and we'll celebrate that by having new apples every year. So, uh, so the, these are actually the EverCrisp and the Ludacrisp, are are takeoffs on Honeycrisp. apparently Honeycrisp apples are very delicate and very hard to grow and to ship. You know, so these have thicker skins and all. But this is this is very typical. Of what has happened in agriculture and food culture in the midwest so we see this tension between conservative and progressive i'm not referring to politics there <laughs> okay so one one way that we can look at at how apples have acquired so much meaning and so many memories for not not just midwesterners but but people throughout the us but these can help us identify what is unique to Midwesterners. We use the concept of foodways. Okay, now the word foodways people kind of toss around like, oh yeah, it's just like how people did things in the old days, you know, or it's kind of the same as food culture. Now, within the discipline of folklore, folklore scholarship has developed the idea of foodways. So we actually talk about it as a theory and a method. Okay, so that. When we talk about food, it's not just the food that carries meaning or carries identity. It's all those things that went into making that food, where you got it, production, who produced it? Your grandmother you know, or you know, the, the commercial farmer. You know, that, changes, that, that changes what that food can mean. Okay? Procurement, how you get your food. If you go to the supermarket or if you go to the orchard next, next door, that makes a difference. It's not always more meaningful just because it's homemade. So I always tell the story of my, my daughter. She was the youngest. I would always make a birthday cake using a recipe that my mother had gotten from her mother. And, and then I would make any design the kids wanted. You know, so we had you know, two boys and a girl. Lots of, lots of castles, dinosaurs, garbage trucks. You know, so it was a lot of fun. And so when my daughter was about five or six, I said, what kind of cake do you want? She said, oh, I don't want you to make a cake. And I said, well, I can make any flavor you want. It doesn't have to be, be Mima's recipe. She said, no, 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 I don't want you to make a cake. So, said, well, what do you want me to do, though? So said, I want you to go to the store and buy me one. I said, well, but we can't make it whatever design we want. She said, I don't care. And, and I want an ice cream cake. I said, well, we can make an ice cream cake. He said, no, no, Mom, you have to go to the store and buy me an ice cream cake. I said, well, why? It'd be so much more fun to make this. I said, I know, and that's why I want you to go to the store. Because you, I know you hate buying birthday cakes at the store, so if you go to the store and buy me a birthday cake, I'll know you really love me. <laughs> so, so I always thought she should be an attorney, <laughs> so she's actually studying sociology. But, <laughs> but I, I tell that story because there's a tendency to think that oh, if we get something from our grandmother, it's automatically more meaningful than going to the grocery store to get it, but not necessarily. You know, so thinking in terms of food ways gives us this whole system of processes to look at and starts helping us realize the complexity of food and how so many different emotions get attached to food in ways that we just we don't realize at all. Orchards tend to be a way to produce apples. They could be commercial or private. They're also frequently a way to procure apples. You know, so how how many of you would, would go out in the fall to an to an apple orchard as kind of your fall ritual? Okay. And and frequently school field trips would do that, Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts. You know, so apple orchards were very functional, but they were turned into a place that we can refer to them as sites of memory because there were rituals about going to apple orchards. It makes it... It's not just a functional place, okay, a, a place of meaning. Okay, th- this, is, this is a friend of mine who... She runs an orchard in, in Minnesota. And, and, and just to kind of give you a sense of the complexity... She's not from Minnesota. She doesn't have any family there. Her husband um, ends up—he he ended up teaching up there, so that's why they moved there. And then they bought an orchard, thinking, "Oh, this would be nice for the children, for the grandchildren." And and then with the recession, they've had to turn it into more of a commercial operation. It was supposed to be a hobby and fun, and now it's—you know. However, in her family history, and I asked her, I so, said, "You know, do you?" do you have any history of working with agriculture? I said, no. You know, doesn't even like apples. So So I said, well, why why are you doing this? At first it was just very functional. She started doing some family history, discovered that her grandfather and great-grandfather, they had been missionaries in China. They were agricultural missionaries to China, Japan, and Korea. And her grandfather had taken Apple saplings you know, she doesn 't even know where where he got those, but he helped to establish the apple industry in korea and i don 't know if you've ever had Korean apples they are wonderful they are, they are so good you know and that's that 's her history so she started this orchard for completely other reasons, and then suddenly it's turned into a place where she's performing her identity, in some ways. <laughs> so, um, now also, I can't tell you how many people told me stories about sneaking into the neighbor's orchard, you know, or you know, climbing the fence to get at an apple tree, that, and, you know, at an abandoned house or something. You know, so that, that's part of the fun of procuring apples, you know, it's not, not the same as going to the supermarket. Also, people tell me stories about they climb up in the apple tree and then they throw apples at people. Okay. That, that was an amazingly common tradition. So that's one of my sons hiding in the apple tree there. Now one of the things that's interesting, well, let me go back to the idea of food waste. So I'm not, I'm not going into real depth with that, but I think you get the idea that it's all these other practices around accumulating those apples you know preparing the apples what do you do with apples when you're finished you know you throw away the core how, how many of you toss the core outside somewhere you know feeds the rabbits feeds the deer so i've talked to a lot of orchard owners who 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 take take the leftover apples you know to the local pig farm you know so you know the apples are, are being recycled in interesting ways you know but but if we think about apples to just disposal You know, how many of you eat the entire thing down to the seeds? And we grew up, we're always told, don't eat those apple seeds. They have arsenic in them, which they do. But eating an apple seed is not going to affect you. You know, but but I hear stories about how people would eat the entire apple, you know, seed and all. Okay, so one of the other things that's very interesting about apples, they're extremely versatile because... As food, they can be eaten raw or cooked. They can be used as an ingredient. They can be turned into a liquid. Okay, so this makes them extremely, extremely versatile. The idea of raw versus cooked, this is an anthropological idea that culture happens when you take ingredients that are raw and you transform them in some ways. So we can have raw apples. Frequently those are sliced. And now you can get all sorts of commercial dips. You know, chocolate, caramel, you know, peanut butter. Okay, those raw apples can be made into caramel apples. Okay, something I'm finding is, you know, how many of you have ever tried to eat a caramel apple or one of those candied, crystallized candle? Well, the apple always ends up falling off, you know, and it's very upsetting. So, so one of the things people do is, is take the apple off the stick and then make an apple blossom, Okay, that's, that's what they're called in some places. Apparently in Wisconsin they're called Queen's Apples, from, from what people there told me. Okay, here's something creative. An apple kebab with a banana and a marshmallow. This was the healthy snack at a festival that, that I went to. Apples are, always used, are also used as ingredients. Okay, this is a, cheese, a grilled cheese sandwich with apple bits. It was, it was actually very tasty. Apple cheese squares. Okay, apples are also preserved in many ways. Apple butter, I don't know if they have this tradition out here, but making apple butter in an an iron kettle over an open fire is a, a big tradition that's being celebrated in Ohio and Indiana. Okay, and this is probably the traditional way of making apple butter. I grew up eating apple butter in Appalachia. And so, when I heard that there was a festival, an apple butter festival, close to me in Ohio, I kind of said, well, that's my food. What are they doing with that? So, I went over to it. It tasted very, their apple butter tastes very different. Both traditions come from the Pennsylvania area, you know, where, where German settlers were coming in, okay, and then German settlers went into Appalachia, and they, they took with them apple butter traditions. And The apple butter there is basically applesauce that is then cooked down until it turns into a thick sauce. In Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, the apple butter is made from apple cider that is cooked. It's cooked down, usually it takes two or three days, and then apple pulp is is added to that. So it has a very, very different flavor and, and texture. Okay, so completely, it goes back originally to Germany, you know, but these, these completely different histories and taste. And then a very common thing to do in Ohio is to add this little cinnamon red hot candies. <laughs> so more apple butter, apple pastries, all, all sorts of apple pastries are, are possible. Apple dumplings is something that they're frequently found in Pennsylvania as a Pennsylvania Dutch food, and along with dried apples and dried apple pie. The fact that they're very popular in some places in Ohio, and this, I think, shows a lot of the German heritage that is very strong there. So I don't know if apple dumplings are something that they have out here. No, Okay. Okay, so here's, here's the apple dumpling. It's basically an apple, a whole apple is peeled and cored, and then it's stuffed usually with cinnamon, sugar, and butter. If you're a Pennsylvania German, you put in raisins, okay? Um, and then you take out leftover pie dough and, and wrap that up. You can put caramel sauce on that. You can do all sorts of things. Apples are made into all sorts of pastries, as we can see and we have some back there also. So apple berry shortcake. Apple pie. Apple pie tends to be thought of as all American. Does anyone know where apple pie comes from? It's actually a British tradition, and there it tends to be called apple tart. It 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 usually doesn't have, you know, the ideal apple pie in America. You know, it's like heaped up like this with apples, and uh, in, in Ireland and in England, it tends to be a flatter kind of pie. It's considered very traditional for Halloween. So, for Halloween and St. Patrick's Day in Ireland, we had apple pie. I thought, what? <laughs> I thought this was our food. You know, but we have all these sayings as American as apple pie. <laughs> where
1: where does, the... does the tart to town fit into that constellation?
0: So, the, the, the tart is is the original. And I'm not I'm not sure where the word pie came from exactly and and when and why and by whom that started being applying to to pie. You know, but we don't use the word tart in in the US usually. So, you know, for well for for this type of thing, we, we would never call this you know, so so the word pie itself seems to be a more American tradition. So, and a lot of American food traditions people don't we don't really recognize this. They actually have Dutch heritage, cookies come from, from Dutch I can't I can't pronounce the word, but but there there, there were a lot of, of food traditions that were the foundation of colonial foodways that were brought in by the Dutch and then by by the British. So it's very possible that there's a Dutch word for a pie that, w- that was adopted. Okay, there's also all sorts of variations. Apple cobbler, apple brown betty, apple crisp. Okay, and all of these are, are basically, you know, some, some kind of apple filling and, and a topping. Now, apple crisp, I always thought of this as very traditional. I grew up with it in Appalachia. You know, I always thought of it as, as fairly Southern. It turns out it's a, it's a much more recent recipe and if you think about, well, you have to have rolled oats in order to make them. And rolled oats started being used in Western Michigan among the Seventh-day Adventists and other, other people who were advocating healthier eating. And rolled oats was one of the things that was seen as, as being healthy. Um, so granola was invented. Grape nuts, grape nuts, things like that. In western Michigan, you know, around, around the mid-1800s. So apple crisp, though, recipes didn't seem to start showing up until the early 1900s. Apple pie donuts, this is a really big thing out in Ohio. I don't know if that's anything that you all have. We, we can start seeing, you know, the heritage of the people who settled those areas, you know, by the apple pastries that, that are popular and the types of apple preserves. You know, so apples in cake is very, very common. Okay, and here they tried to make them look like caramel apples. Okay, and here they're supposed to be real apples. <laughs> so cookies, pretending to be apples, apple fritters. There, there's a lot of Amish influence in Ohio and Indiana. And, and a lot of people will say, oh, you know, th- this is an Amish recipe. So whether or not it actually is, we, we don't really know. That that whole variety of products though, you can you can see where you know that that gives all sorts of opportunities, you know, for different memories to come in, different taste, but different heritages also. Apples obviously are made into various liquids. Okay, apple cider, they're not referring to hard cider at all. Okay, caramel apple smoothie that's made with apple cider. Okay, and then apples obviously are drinks. Small town apple pie. I don't know if this is something that you're familiar with up here. This is moonshine, you know, so distilled corn usually mixed with apple juice or apple cider. It's very popular in Ohio where there are a lot of people who have migrated up from the mountains. Uh, And there are a lot of hillbilly jokes around there and people talk about moonshine. You know, so this might be representing some of that some of that heritage. Okay, now with Apple Cider, I, I don't have more slides to show this, but I was just interviewing cider makers in the Madison, Wisconsin area, partly because what I'm seeing with cider, you used to not be able to get hard cider at very many places in the US. You had to go to an Irish pub, you know, or or someone would, would have it privately at home, and if you were friendly, you know, they, they, might, they might give you some. There's a resurgence of hard cider making, okay. and, and partly because artisanal beer is very popular. A lot of people are doing home brewing of all types, but also because cider ties in with heritage, so that people can do things like try to go and find Thomas Jefferson's trees, and then grow them, and then make high, hard cider. And they are imbibing American history. You know, so so there's all this other stuff connected to hard cider now that is making it very popular. The, the last thing I want to mention, in, in Indiana and Ohio, there are tons and tons of apple festivals. Okay, now, I know that there's some apple festivals out here. They don't seem to be quite as, as prevalent. Okay, but. We see apple butter festivals, apple dumpling festivals, apple pie festivals. What these festivals are doing, they're very family-oriented. They have lots of children activities. Okay, and they're giving people an opportunity to recreate some of their memories from childhood. You know, if they don't have orchards now, they can go to one of these apple festivals and pretend to be in an orchard. Okay, and they take chores, things that would have been chores, and they turn these into games, so apple picking, okay? And then you can purchase apples at these festivals. You can purchase various apple products, and you can sit around and eat these with your friends and your family. So what what these apple festivals are doing is tapping in to the memories that are there, okay? And the meaningfulness of apples for a lot of the people who have grown up in that area they allow these people to come in, celebrate those memories, where frequently the, it wasn't that special. You know, you know, we have to pick apple trees. You know, we, we have to pick apples You know, from granddaddy's tree. It was a chore. But now this festival says, wow, wasn't this cool? You were participating in this fun tradition. And then they give an opportunity for people to recreate those memories with other people, with their families, their children, with their friends. Okay, so there are... All, all sorts of things happening at these festivals okay, that are creating a sense of identity. Are Apple special in the Midwest? I'd say yes and no. A lot of these memories, people all over the U.S. have these. However, they are tied more to a sense of place here. And they seem to be very, very intense. and. So, so people, when, are, when they're talking about their childhood, will frequently bring up apples. But also, I think the very fact that they are all American, they are shared by everyone else, that ties into Midwestern identity. When people would say, we don't have anything special, we're just all American, apples prove that. Yet, when they take a bite of an apple, that also takes them, it floods them with memories. Okay, and takes them into all of these events from their past and also events in the present so that they can share those memories. Okay, so I'll leave it up to you to decide if apples are special for you. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Right. Questions? I probably knew this at one time, but I can't remember, what's the connection between caramel apples and Halloween? Yes, well, Actually, apples were connected to Halloween in Great Britain, in in Ireland, specifically. And there were traditions of doing things like peeling the apple, and you take the peel and throw it over your back, and it makes a letter, and that's the first initial of the man you're going to marry. That that, That was a very common thing to do for Halloween. People would bob for apples, not in water, but they would, they would tie, tie the apples to the rafters on a string and then you have to try to take a bite of the apple. And so apples figured significantly in Irish Halloween traditions and in Irish culture in general. The Irish immigrants during the 1800s brought their Halloween traditions. Okay, and they, they were primarily in urban areas and they did not have apple orchards themselves, but they, they maintained some of these traditions. And the Irish, when they first came here, and really up until the 1960s, you know, were kind of looked upon askance. And, and so people didn't want to say, oh, this is an Irish tradition. So the, the history of that was forgotten. You know, when, when you think about what you do for Halloween, you bob for apples. You know, it used to be that people would give you an apple you know, now they put razor blades in the apple, <laughs> you, know, you know, but, you know, we're not, we're not usually thinking about, well, where did that come from? It's just kind of, it's what we do. So, that's actually the Irish, the Irish heritage.
1: A lot of steak sauces contain apples.
0: So, the, the, the comment was a lot of steak sauces contain apples. A lot of barbecue sauces use apples. There's actually, I don't know if you're familiar with Korean food, Korean bulgogi. It's a kind of like a grilled beef and that sauce is now being promoted. Um, so bulgogi sauce, that's sweetened usually with apple. You know, so, so people would put in a little bit of applesauce in, into things to sweeten. So it's a natural sweetener. Plus apples have, have a high percentage of pectin so it's also a natural thickener. And so it works very well in sauces. And then people can feel all American and healthy. <laughs> it is? Applejack, with, with the cider revival, applejack is very popular, apple brandy, apple wine. Um, you know, so people are trying to find all sorts of varieties. Part of this is, is due to you know people, people who grew up with cider with hard cider, like it, you know, so, so that, that's part of the market. But also, a lot of people who have traveled overseas, if you've ever lived in Spain, okay, Spain, north, the northern and northwest coast of Spain, they, they have these very old traditions of cider making. We call it cidre. And, and they, then they have these rituals that go along with it. It's not carbonated, so in order to carbonate it, they hold the bottle up really high and then pour it, you know, four feet <laughs> or whatever, down to your cup. So, you know, that, that's something they do at parties a lot. And it's become, it's become a big ritual. And France, you know, they, they have their own types of ciders. England and Ireland are famous for, for cider. You go to a pub, I've lived in Ireland off and on, and when I would go to a pub, the stout was just kind of, you know, it was too heavy for me. So I would get cider. You know, and later on, you know, I found out my friends were all laughing at me. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can't, you can't hold your alcohol, so you have to have cider. Well, it turns out, actually, cider has frequently twice the amount of alcohol as beer, so, and it has a lot of sugar, so you actually have to be kind of careful about that. But part of what's happening with the revival, people are, are trying, the, the big commercial producers, you know, are are catering to to what they think of as american taste you know so very sweet types of, of ciders a lot of the you know the, the the smaller cider makers are trying to go back to the more european the dry ciders some of these are are very fine ciders you know others others are they're using windfall apples and things but there's there there's a lot of differentiation between the different types of ciders They're becoming more and more popular. There was a beer festival in Milwaukee. You know, they're celebrating their heritage. You know, in in Milwaukee by drinking beer. They added cider to that several years ago, and that's happening in Michigan, too. You know, so it was was fascinating. In, In Madison, Wisconsin, I interviewed several, three, at least three different cider makers. Who they were Americans fr- from the Midwest, but they had actually gotten introduced to cider overseas, primarily Spain and, and England. So they liked the ciders there. One was just kind of looking around for something, you know, something to do, and you know she had retired and wanted a new career, and and she loved the cider in France and England, so she started making it. Other people see cider-making as something that ties in with sustainability, so that you can grow the apples, you, you feed the, the, the mash, the pulp, to, um, to pigs, you know, and, then, and then you can serve pork sausage with, with your hard cider in your tasting room. You know, so so there's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening now with hard cider. And, and it ties into heritage. You know, people say I'm studying American history, you know, by drinking the cider. <laughs> yes. What's the smallest and
1: the largest apple you know of?
0: Well, the, the, the crab apple. The, the question was, what was the smallest and the largest apple? The smallest is is the crab apple. Um, the largest, I don't I don't know what what that would be. And it, new varieties are being developed. All the time, and and pomologists, you know, people who study apples, they they keep track of all that. You know, they know the names of the people who who were inventing those apples, and Iowa um, and and then Cornell are, are big centers for for apple grafting and, and apple exploration. You know, so the, the Univ- University of Illinois website would probably have that. So I've gotten a lot of reliable information from them. It'd be fun to know, though. So actually, the largest apples I have seen were in Korea. So, and they were that big, you know, almost like melon-sized. There's a
1: two-pounder that, and it's maybe called a two-pounder, that shows up at the farmer's market in Evanston, just north of here. Really? Uh, apples, which are true apples, mm-hmm. um, not crab apples, which are pretty small. They're just pretty, pretty, very tart but very high in pectin, and they're used they're used in Mexican pancha come Christmas time. So they're oh. um, mm-hmm. to make what we call the spiced crab apple. So oh, okay. they're, they're, they're about that size, versus
0: that size. <laughs> okay, and, and I, I've heard
1: of that, and I assume that
0: they were crab apples.
1: I am, and um, they were? We have a lot of hmm. different ethnic groups in the north of the city here, and grocery stores cater to them, and if you start chatting with the guys in the produce department, you learn all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So lady apples are real apples as opposed to crab apples, which are malus. I think Mila's this is the G- genus. Gen- mm-hmm. uh, the things that look pretty in your front yard, um, and um, they're real. They're just mm-hmm. very small. And they're mm-hmm.
0: defined. There's still apples. It's just. That's what mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, good. I'll, I'll have to look that up. Yeah. yeah, and I also, you know, since since I, I don't have a background in, in food science or you know chemistry um, or agriculture, so. I try not to overstep my bounds with things like that, and you know, and I, I talk to a lot of people who have orchards, and and I can Google lots of things, <laughs> you know, but but I'm always kind of kind of hesitant to you know to, to give you a definitive answer on something like that. It's kind of like, how many orchards are there in the Midwest? You know, and well, how many rabbits are there in the Midwest? You know, it depends on the season. (laughs) Depends on where you are. So, so you know, some of these answers get get very get very tricky. So. I was going to ask about the Korean. What you said, it's they're big. What's the flavor of the Tart side, and how do they use them in Korean cooking? So the the question was about Korean apples, and they they slice them up and eat them raw. Um, however, they tend to, they usually peel them, at least when, when, when I lived there, they, they were very worried about the natural, you know, the night soil that they would use for fertilizer. So almost all fruits were peeled. Um, but they, they do, they, they'll put a slice of apple and kimchi, Okay, and it's a, a sweeten, it sweetens it up a little bit. they use it in, in the sauces frequently um, and it, it's frequently eaten for for dessert and snacks so they'll put an apple ring in ginseng tea and ginger tea. yeah, it's a really nice idea. The question was what, what accounts for the differences in apple butter making between Ohio and, and appalachia I think you know, part of, part of what happened in, in Appalachia is that the, the German heritage was kind of very intentionally forgotten, both by insiders and outsiders. People who would write about Appalachia, they always talked about the Scotch-Irish heritage, you know, and then they, they started talking about the English heritage, you know, but no one recognized the German, um, and there are other Eastern Europeans, who, who went into the area. You know, so, so part of it was that it wasn't preserved as a heritage food. People weren't saying, oh, this came from my German great-great-grandmother. You know, so they started doing whatever was most convenient, I think. And the cider is easier to drink that, and it takes a long time to boil it down. You know, so I think it's probably a matter of convenience and then also just a sense of, well, it doesn't matter what we do to it. We're not trying to preserve a history. Part of what happened in, in Ohio, and, and also in Pennsylvania, the Amish continued to make this as one of their foods. So, so people became very aware. You, know, you, you go to a farm market, and there's Amish peanut, peanut butter, you know, Amish um, apple butter. You know. You know, so there was this very strong sense that, oh, this is old stuff there's a history to it. And then in in Ohio, the Apple Butter Festival started because a f- a family that was very active with the historical society in this one town, they were trying to come up with what can we do that has a sense of heritage, that would be fun, that would include everybody, but it's also different from what other places are doing. And so one of the families they would have a family reunion around apple butter making every year. They, they had an orchard, and so this was something that they, that everybody had done in the past, you know, and so they thought th- this would work well for history. So, and then, and then people started saying, oh yeah, I remember my grandmother doing that. And people started looking in their garages and finding, you know, finding these old, these old iron kettles. You know, and so now, the tradition in Ohio, is has, it has to be outside <laughs> in an iron kettle. And, and you can see how then that turns into a fun kind of event. You know, it's a potluck and other things are happening, and you, know, you have to be there stirring you know, for two or three days. So, you know, so, so the, the, the difficulties of making it are part of what make it special. Yeah. I, I just wanted to comment. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, had never, <laughs> I had never heard of apple pie, um, even though, you know, so you know, we're talking about apple pie, the, the drink, and I had never heard of apple pie as, as a drink, even though several of my uncles were bootleggers, and, you know, it's kind of part of the family mythology, you know, they had stills up in the mountains you know. I first ran into it in Michigan. Then I started seeing it, you know, at festivals, and, you know, they'll have beer, and they'll say, oh, apple pie, you know. Since it's made with moonshine, you know, the FDA rules, the safety rules and legalities of serving it, you, know, you usually have to get it in, in a brewery or in, in a place that's making real alcohol. So, yeah, so that's, be on the lookout for that. That's spreading. <laughs> One of the things that I didn't realize is how you know safety rules and also all the alcohol rules are shaping what people are able, you know, are, are legally able to make and sell. You know, so so part of the problem with with hard cider, it has to be made from unpasteurized cider, and and orchards are not the apple cider has to be pasteurized in order to sell it. You know, so, so there are all these legalities that people have to have to work around. Much of the commercial hard cider in the U.S., and, and not even the commercial, but even a lot of the, you know, the orchards that are having, like, big festivals and all, they, they frequently are using imported apple juice from China as, as their basis. So... Yeah. yeah, so, you know, you, you can see where it turns into a sustainability issue and people feel like I'm buying my local cider, you know, from this local cider maker who got his apples from the orchard over here that we know is organic. You know, so it's, got, it's kind of a way to, um, you know, to, to tie yourself in into that, that sustainability. I'm collecting apple stories and apple recipes, so, <laughs>